0: Hello, everyone. It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show. We are continuing our series with the Medical Association of Georgia. Hard to believe that we've put a full year behind us again here and starting out 2017. So we thought it might be a great idea to sit down with the folks from the leadership team and uh, learn a little bit about what we achieved last year, and talk about some of the priorities that we have for the Medical Association of Georgia coming up on the 2017 legislative sessions. So I'm pleased to have with me in the studio Donald Palmisano Jr. He is the executive director and CEO for mag. And then we got a special treat. We had someone get added to uh, our, our show today, Dr. Stephen Walsh. He is the president of Medical Association of Georgia. We were able to grab him uh, in between events today and have him sit in with us. So, gentlemen, thanks for taking some time. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm happy to have you. And, and, and Donald, if you would, talk a little bit about Wrap up 16 for us. We we achieved a lot, sounds like. Uh, some things that you were working very hard on, I think, sounded like as we were talking before we jumped on today, uh, mm-hmm. where you were able to make some headway in directions you were moving. So talk a little bit about where we, where we went, and then we'll get into where we're going this year.
2: Okay. Love to. Last year, one of the big things that we were dealing with, one of the biggest issues, dealt with uh, the health insurance mergers. So Blue Cross Blue Shield and Cigna decided they wanted to merge, as well as um, Aetna and Humana. Aetna and Humana were coming together uh, really to look at the Medicare Advantage market and how that would impact patients. And so um, our leadership got together and uh, came up and and voted to oppose the mergers. And so I'm proud to say that MAG, uh, along with a couple of other medical societies, as well as the American Medical Association, all came together and moved forward in, in bringing together this coalition that was able to bring the Department of Justice to an understanding of how this would impact patients and physicians in such a negative way, that the Department of Justice ended up filing suit to block the mergers of Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Cigna, as well as Aetna and Humana. And right now, that, those cases are proceeding in the courts. And so they're in federal district court right now, and we're anticipating that there will be some sort of decision in the next couple of weeks. And those mergers,
0: if they were to go through to completion, would have a pretty significant impact on the landscape of, of plans that are available out there. Talk a little bit about why would we bother to pay such attention to this.
2: So, for instance, if we just talked about Etna and Humana at first. So, when you look at Aetna and you man, and you look at the Medicare Advantage market, so if you're of Medicare age, you either do traditional Medicare or you do Medicare Advantage. If that merger was allowed to happen, then Aetna in Georgia would have been in some markets uh, the only Medicare Advantage provider for our nation's seniors. And so we've known in the past that some of the Medicare Advantage companies have gotten physicians out of their networks, which then lead to less access for patients. And so this would have uh, really impacted the seniors of this country who have paid over the course of their lifetime into Medicare, and they would have been um, in such a position where they would have less access to care. Now, on 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 the commercial side, if you would have allowed Aetna and Yamana to merge as well as Cigna and and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Georgia. You're talking in the individual market, it would have been 90% of the business would have been comprised between these two new companies that would have formed. In the group market, it would have been 80%. So you can imagine the impact on patients. Right now, patients are already having problems when they buy plans on, on the exchange to sit there and have access to care to physicians because you know, it's kind of like a bait and switch, right? So you go buy a plan on the exchange and you find out that, wait, my doctor's not in the network or the doctor can be removed from the network at any point in time after you buy the plan, which then results in higher out-of-network costs to you. And then what happens is you end up having to pay that. And so the plans end up, you know, you're you're buying a premium, you're paying your premium for coverage that may not be exactly the coverage that you intended to purchase when you bought that plan.
0: Talking about,
2: moving your physician,
0: because you wouldn't necessarily know to go. So you find out at that point or when you get your explanation of benefits that now they're not in your network any longer. So those are some of the challenges I know we had talked about is, is that they can change so quickly without really a lot of notice flowing out that the group has changed now.
2: That's absolutely correct. Because it's not as if when uh, the, the insurance companies sign a contract with a physician, that it's on a calendar year. It could be at any point in the year. And so what we have seen, and it's actually actually happened to me, where when I bought the plan, my physician was on the was in network. And then they had a contract dispute and a couple months later, my physician was no longer in the network. When I called up the physician's office and it said, Yeah, well, we do accept this plan, but you know, like anything else, when you're talking about a PPO or an HMO or the you know the product, it's not like it used to be where there was only a few you know different products now there's multiple products with multiple networks and most of the time the physicians don't even know what networks they're actually in and so in my particular situation when i actually called that insurance company they they sent me to a phone that they didn't take messages and it would just ring 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 finally <laughs> i had to use my contacts in georgia to get up with that particular plan and say what what's going on here and so when i finally got the person on the phone they said well we don't have. We don't take messages. We'll, we'll just call you. And, and so I asked them, I said, "What if I'm not on the? You know, what if I'm not at my desk when you happen to call that day?" And they said, "Well, we'll just call you back." But they don't leave a phone number. So how is a patient supposed to address and appeal those type of issues? And so it really puts the patients at a
0: disadvantage. Interesting that in this particular situation, it happened to be somebody that maybe knew someone that you could actually get an answer to. Right. Something clearly that not everybody. Has that sort of uh, connection where they can say, "Hey, I'm having some hard time getting an answer here," and you were able to uh, illuminate that. Talk about some of the other things that you were
2: particularly pleased with how they went for uh, for our previous year. Well, the, the the legislative session was a successful session for the uh, physicians and patients in Georgia. I can't speak highly enough of of Governor Nathan Deal and the House and Senate leadership in terms of of the initiatives that they pass to continue to try to protect patients and physicians. Uh, one of the things dealt with what we like to call silent PPOs, those are the networks that a physician will sign a contract, and then what will happen is that contract will be what we call rented out or to be able to be used by other companies. So then what happens is they'll change the compensation that is due to the physician or they'll change the different pre-authorizations, pre-certifications, Unknown to the physician. Well, now we've got some transparency in the marketplace with the bill that passed last year to at least give some peace of mind to physicians and patients.
0: So you're saying then now that now as things stand, if that kind of transaction, if you will, occurs or uh, some sort of collaboration between companies where they're subleasing out some some plan bandwidth, you're saying that everybody's got to be notified. You got to be. Told this is happening.
2: There's got to be transparency. And then then if there isn't, there is um, relief where you go to the Commissioner of Insurance office and and at least they have authority to address these type of issues.
0: I got you. And what about this year as you start looking forward into 2017? I'm sure there's a a few things on the horizon that you really want to sink your teeth into.
2: Well, you know, one of the things that we're really looking at, which was a carryover from last year, dealt with with the opioid abuse that this nation is plagued with and has been termed an, ap- an epidemic. And so uh, we've uh, obviously through our MAG Foundation, through our Think About It campaign and mm-hmm. our deaths avoided by naloxone, have been a leader in pushing for uh, ways to address this epidemic. Last year we worked um, with with the legislature in order to make it easier for physicians to use the Prescription Drug Monitoring Program. The Prescription Drug Monitoring Program uh, is a program that allows the physician before they prescribe uh, any kind of Schedule 2 or Schedule 5 to see if that particular patient has been doctor shopping or hospital shopping or Mm -hmm. what have you. And so we were trying to make it easier for physicians to be able to use that database. So one of the things that we worked with is to allow uh, certain staff within the physician's office to be delegated to to check the database, but also to allow the physician and and the healthcare team to talk about it. Because before, the physician couldn't and the pharmacist couldn't talk about what they were finding in the database. That was against the law. Now the physician and the pharmacist can speak to one another, but additionally, uh, the physician can talk to other physicians about what they're seeing in the database in order to try to to, to try to help that patient at a later time and to really address the problems at that, at that moment.
0: When it comes to that database, we still haven't necessarily resolved how we go about being able to use it, though, from what I understand. It's still the doctor is the one that needs to access that particular database. And we're sorting through who can actually provide access and therefore from a workflow perspective, trying to be able to manage a day full of patients where potentially, I know having talked to physicians about electronic medical record use, for example, uh, pop-up fatigue is one of the, uh, a term that I heard from some physicians where I want to change my prescription. I just want to refill the prescription for my patient. And I get a a flurry of alerts popping up. This patient already has this prescription, alert, danger, and then they have to click through these. How does that flow with this one? From from what I understand, it's not a part of my EMR. It's another portal unto itself, another browser, if you will. Uh, So from a workflow perspective, being able to at least have maybe one of my higher level nursing staff or RN or somebody else that's qualified from a medical training perspective to be able to go in and look and see, do they have data on there that we need to pay attention to?
2: Right. Uh, The the HB900 passed last year, and, and that was what it was supposed to address to allow other people in the physician's offices to utilize the database under the specific direction of that physician. They had to be delegated to. And so... There was some interpretations of the law. The attorney general got involved and the attorney general came out and and issued an opinion that allowed, that that, that was consistent with what the intent of the law was to look at and say nurses are allowed to check the database under the direction of the physician and even expanded it to medical assistance. So people within that office, in order so that the physician can continue to see patients, because what happens is the way the database is, you check it and then you have to log out and you got to log back in each time and it's not part of your medical record. And so that's one of the challenges um, that we're going to continue to work on going forward. However, there was an opioid study committee that came out, and it just came out with the the report about two hours ago. And one of the things in the report addressed is making it mandatory for physicians to check. And we don't think right now that it's it's prime time, that the database is is as accessible as it should be and easy to use for a physician's practice. And so, right now, we've got some concerns on it, and we're obviously going to continue to talk to um, when the bill, when any kind of bill gets dropped, talk to the sponsors and explain to them the, the practical impact of that on a physician's practice. That's the the element
0: that I think sometimes it's difficult to necessarily think about unless you are in that doctor's office and in that environment a little bit to understand all the different things that you're having to document that you have to touch uh, for each patient encounter uh, at at varying levels of of the clini- clinician from the physician to the to the nursing staff as well each of them has documentation that they have to accomplish and to have it be in a bunch of different places where you're having to particularly in that case which, like you're saying Donald where you have to physically log in physically log out those are moments that add up right. uh, over the course of a day. And again, when we're talking about seeing sometimes 30, 40, and even more patients in a day, that, that's a lot of time that begins to accrue on somebody who's going to be t- touching every one of those patients. Exactly.
2: And so, one of the things that, that, that the study, that, that, that the study uh, committee also came out with recommendations, which we're in full support of, is that um, they want to make it into law. Governor Deal in uh, December just uh, put out an executive order that allowed a standing order for naloxone, which is, helps to re- reverse somebody that's having an, an opioid overdose or a heroin overdose and save some lives, but allowed it to be done from a standing order by the Department of Public Health, mm-hmm. which now makes it more accessible and easily attainable for patients. And so this is fantastic. And, and, the, and the, the study committee really heard um, the need for that and, and recommended that that be put into law so then that way it now it will become statutory versus simply relying on an executive order that can be changed at any time so we're really uh we're going to be very supportive of that position because it, it saves lives
0: and that that's the the issue where even physician or uh, uh, police officers and EMS type folks firemen and and uh, EMTs can administer that drug when it's determined this is the problem and therefore prevent a lot of people from dying of an overdose because they had that delay of time before they were able to get that.
2: Correct. And, and, and Dr. Walsh is the treasurer of our um, Medical Association of Georgia Foundation and has been um, actively engaged in our Think About It and also deaths avoided by naloxone campaign. And as part of that, we've purchased through a grant from the Northeast Georgia Medical Center, the Medical Center Foundation, we received a grant to purchase naloxone for all of the first responders in that 13 to 14 county area that's served up there in North Georgia. As a result, we also do the training. And so we train the first responders. And so we've now equipped, I'm proud to say, naloxone with all the first responders in 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 that particular part of Georgia and also expanded the program to other parts of the state. So it's, it's I can't say enough about it. I'd ask Dr. Walsh if he has any further comments on, on the foundation's programs.
1: Well, you know, I, I think the, the program at the foundation is is such a timely uh, such a timely uh, project, and and we really got a we really got an early start on this. We're just building the network across the state to use these uh, these uh, resources, these financial resources, uh, to train and distribute the medication. It's uh it's going to save lives.
0: Are all the parties involved are, are jumping on board? I would imagine in terms of participating and and being able to, because I know that the part of the foundation was work was to raise awareness around how to uh, handle prescription medications and things like that. Kind of an, uh, a marketing campaign around the project is that starting to really expand and and having more people uh, contribute to getting that information out there into the community.
1: Yes, yes, we we have one of the uh, one of the medical directors under the project, uh, Doctor Attending Slack, mm-hmm. has been doing a doing a great job about uh, educating people. You know, the one, one, one of the main problems of the opioid crisis is uh, is diversion of prescription uh, drugs. So part of the ways that, that we help with the problem is is educating uh, people that that they need to secure those uh, drugs so that they're safe and uh, not available, and also to dispose of those drugs when they've uh, completed their therapy.
0: Are there resources of any kind that the foundation is looking to maybe attract that would help expand this initiative and, and its level of awareness in the community, whether it's I don't know what that agency might be, if, uh, is it pharmacists or physicians or uh, anything resource wise that you think that if we had more collaboration with them, then this would really go
2: forward? Well, we do have a um we have a task force within our foundation that has met and put forth a strategic plan. In fact, they have another meeting coming up in about two weeks. And those that are participating include pharmacy, include dentistry, include pain physicians, as well as psychiatrists, behavioral health. We've got a number of groups, as well as some people within the agencies that attend this particular strategic planning group. And it's a way to to come up with, with what else can we be doing. Uh, one of the things that came out of this um, a couple months back was that Kaiser Permanente was generous enough to give us a grant in which we were able to start educating on college campuses and also providing drug uh, boxes for students on college campuses so that they could throw away their prescription drugs. But also there were educational pieces in terms of posters and things like that that were put up around the campus to to the service areas of where Kaiser Permanente is, is present.
0: When it comes to our conversation earlier about some of the changes in the in the healthcare insurance landscape and access. Uh, one of the things that we talked about was uh, the adequacy of networks um, in terms of their breadth and how wide they are and and where they're available. That sort of thing. Talk a little bit about as we look forward, how what you want to attack around networks and access to care, because we, we talk about trying to make sure that patients that are in the Medicaid population, for example, that they can get access to care. Talk about network adequacy and, and the issue of transparency and how that will make us all better consumers of healthcare.
2: I would say that um, over the last couple of years, and we alluded to this in, in terms of what the mergers and, and the impact is that you have these narrowing of networks, which have resulted, resulted in out of, higher out-of-network costs, to patients. And so one of the things that's been put forth into the media and all is this concept of surprise bills. Well, nobody's really provided a definition of surprise bills because uh, we've asked for examples, and of course we can't get the examples because they won't turn them over to us. But when we have been given examples and we looked at it, sometimes people are surprised that their deductible went up on their in-network. But that's not really the crux of what people are getting to. What, 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 What the industry is trying to promote out there is that there are a lot of surprise bills. And those surprise bills happen. They argue that when a patient goes into an emergency room or a hospital that's in network, then they find out that maybe the emergency physician or the anesthesiologist or the radiologist or what have you is out of network and they receive this bill. And so their position is that, that the government should basically rate set and protect these patients. Well, We've looked at this issue, brought in all the different groups, and we've had, uh, we, we've brought in anesthesiology, radiology, and, and Dr. Walsh is an anesthesiologist, emergency medicine. One of the things that we're proposing is to say, look, we've got a coverage issue here, right? Patients are, are buying these policies that don't provide adequate coverage. But what the physicians have, have said, what they're willing to do is to say, look, we're willing to take the patient out of it. Uh, out of the mix in an emergency situation. So if you go to an in-network hospital and it's an emergency situation, the doctors are saying we're okay if the insurance company reimburses us directly and makes that payment and it's based on the fair health database at the 80th percentile. And so what that basically means is that it's a database that's not owned by the insurance companies. It's a charge-based database that came about because Back in the in about two thousand nine, there was a database called Ingenix. Do you remember what Ingenix? Do you remember that database? Mm-mm. Well, this was very interesting. So there was it was a charge based database uh, called Ingenix that the insurers would put their data into. So whatever the physician was charging out of network, it's you know based on the billing. And so what happened was that um, this particular database, Cuomo uh, at the time, the Attorney General Cuomo up in New York, started to do an investigation and noticed that. The data that's coming out does not really represent what is, you know, customary in those particular areas. And patients are paying a lot more money than maybe they should. Mm. Well, he found some problems with them. He ended up uh, getting into a settlement with the health insurers, to which they turned around and and the money was put forth to fo- to form the Fair Health Database, which is out of New York. It's out of Syracuse. and But here's the thing about the Fair Health Database is that it's not controlled by Physicians. It's not controlled by health insurers or hospitals or anybody, right? It is a not for profit, completely separate. But here was the real crux about Ingenix. This is for the first time that we all learned through Attorney Cuomo's investigation that Ingenix was actually owned by none other than United Healthcare, to which he found that clearly there was a conflict of interest in that the data that was being put out there. So That's what we've argued to the health plans. Um, The pushback that we've gotten is that um, they want to expand it beyond emergency situations. And we're saying, well, why don't we just talk about emergency situations? Because in non-emergency situations, the patient does have the time to make the phone calls. It's like anything else. Like If I'm going to go buy a $40,000 car or if I'm going to go buy a house, I'm not a car dealer. I'm not, I'm not a realtor, I, I, you know, I don't build houses, I'm not a contractor. Right. But at the same time, as I'm doing, I do my due diligence. And when people say, oh you, you don't have the time to do that, well, call up the hospital, call up the, the physician. If, you go, if you're gonna potentially be on the hook for an exorbitant amount of money, potentially, then there is something that, somebody, now, you know, that is due by the patient. However, if something does come up, then we can address that. But in an emergency situation, it's different. The patient is brought there in an emergency setting, there is no choice. And and that's where the doctors have come out and said, we're okay with taking the patient out of it and finding a solution. Now, the health plans, on the other hand, from what we've heard, um, some of their discussion is that, oh, it's just charge-based. and But they didn't have a problem when they were running ingenics, right? It was okay then. But they don't want to have a charge-based database now when it's not within their exclusive purview. I see.
0: When it comes to the notion of transparency, where do you see that going? I I, I agree with when you the an, an example that that you mentioned one time when we were talking was about driving by pharmacies. You don't know what the medicine costs inside. Uh, are we moving in that direction? Do you think that when it comes to things like I don't know various elements of what my healthcare costs? I mean, does does it look like we'll be getting closer to being able to do a little bit of shopping, particularly in a place like? This now, if I live in Houston, Missouri, which is a town of fifteen hundred people or so, there's one hospital, so I have one choice. But I might drive to the next town. Are there issues where the patient is going to be getting access to more information around some of these issues? What I'm going to pay when I go to this hospital for this test, or what various plans truly look like compared to each other?
1: You know, I think I think there's great opportunity here. Yes, we are recognizing uh, the importance of transparency, but both both as a, you know, a, a consumer healthcare and and also a, a, as a physician when, when I'm trying to refer patients to somebody else. One, one of the things we have noticed, though, is that with the development of the uh, high deductible uh, health plans and the health savings accounts, when, when, when you put, give power to the patient on how that money is spent, they make good choices. And, and I think we need, to, uh, we need to continue to help the patient in that way, to become a better consumer of healthcare, and you can only do that with expanding transparency. You were going to say something, yeah.
2: And I would further that up is that you know, in, in reference to the comment you made about a previous conversation that we had regarding, uh, like pharmacy drugs, most people don't even know what a pharmacy benefit manager is. The pharmacy benefit manager market basically has some some very strong input into the cost of the drugs. And Because they're a lot of times the arm of the insurance company. They they're, they they have a contract with the insurance company. And a lot of times we as we as patients don't know how much pharmaceutical drugs cost. How is it that doxycycline years ago was a minimal cost? And now what's the cost on doxycycline? How much is that going up? Oh, yeah. yeah. Thousand percent mm-hmm. over the course of years. Mm-hmm. And so none of us know why those costs are out there. And so when we look at it, it's, You know, when I go to a pharmacy, I don't know how do I determine how do I save a better deal for myself as a patient when I don't understand how the cost with the pharmacy benefit manager to everyone else in the system is done. And there's no transparency there. Uh, And so, if there's no transparency, you can't make educated decisions on what is best for you in terms of trying to save cost in the healthcare system.
0: So, then are we? Working on being able to have some of that information available to the consumer, is it, is it in the works yet? Or is it just is it one of those things that we're talking about that we need? We just don't really have anything measure-wise that'll make that happen. It's slow,
1: but, but, but we are making progress. You know, I, 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 I just heard an example that um, there, there's a, a medication that you take uh, orally. For the treatment of diabetes, and this is something I, I wasn't even aware of uh, just one week ago. There's one tablet, 500 milligrams, and there's another tablet at a thousand milligrams. Well, it ends up that in some areas, a patient could pay n- not twice as much for twice the strength, but ten times as much for twice the strength. What's the background behind that? We we have no idea, and and that's where we need more transparency so we can understand things like that. And, and, and certainly as a physician, I mean, I, I can't look up the cost of all strengths of medication and and help my patient uh, make the best decision. It's transparency will go a long way in helping us out.
2: And, and this is how the process gets started is this, these type of conversations starting to happen. You're starting to see them at the national level. People are starting to look at it and say, How are pharmacy benefit managers? How are pharmaceutical costs determined? And when you kind of start really peeling back the onion, it it always seems to lead back to the insurance industry in one form or another. And that, you know, because I I don't know, you know, my father's a physician and my uncle's a physician and my cousins are a physician. And when I talk to my uncle and my dad and they tell me, you know, I I make the the, the same amount of money in terms of the actual dollar amount today that I did is in 1985. Well, obviously th- there's not an increase in, in, in the cost there. Mm-hmm. Where are the increase in costs? They
0: often seem kind of arbitrary when it comes to issues around medications. I mean, look at the big discussion that was just had over the EpiPen. Now all of a sudden it's $600, really? Right. That feels a little, it feels, like I say, it feels a little random and arbitrary that, uh, I don't know, what do you think guys? 600 that, bucks? That sounds pretty good. People really want it. It's selling. It seems like that's some of the, the thought process behind some of those types of pricing. I do believe that actually being able to have a measure of market pressure, I oh, I see at CVS, it's this, and at Walgreens, it's that. Uh, I can then make a choice and better spend our healthcare dollars with that type of information. So I do believe, not just in pharmacy, I think that being able to do that to you know, all the way down to the hospital level, if you can. And I know that the hospitals uh, typically say, well, you know, the whole notion about the super bill and why does it, why is my plastic comb that you gave me, why was that $8? Why, why was the urinal $12? Uh, you know, things like that, that are the, the answer that you get is much the same. It's, well, it's apples and oranges. We can't really, our hospital's different than the other hospital. Right. So really it's a CT scan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? CT here to, is a CT over there. Uh, when it comes to a topic that I'm sure many of our physician listeners are quite familiar with, and the whole notion of maintenance of certification and what you have to go through uh, for your specialty to be able to continue to receive your uh, credentials uh, annually, obviously comes into play when you're trying to uh, keep your privileges and and licensure and all those things. Talk a little bit about where things are with
1: Maintenance of certification. You've touched on a thorn in my side. It's a difficult uh, pathway uh, for, for, for many physicians. And it's a pathway many perceive uh, is not fair. And when you get down to it, uh, really doesn't benefit uh, patients or physicians. For example, maintenance of certification is uh, oftentimes a setup on, uh, on a 10-year cycle. Your specialty board provides you a certification that lasts for 10 years. And in the end of that 10-year period, uh, you are then faced with sitting for a pass-fail test, (laughs) you know? (laughs) 10 years later. 10 years later. That can have a 50-50 chance of a a really bad outcome for you and your patients. And uh, and, and, and it's just not really seen as a good tool to evaluate skill set. For example, OBGYN, who over the course of their career, decide to uh, specialize uh in gyn and uh and not do ob mm-hmm. but yet when they come back to their moc their maintenance of certification you know they they are also tested on the obstetrical uh, side of their spe- specialty when, uh, when they no longer practice that. Uh, so, you know, there's, there, there's a lot of flaws. There's a lot of flaws in this uh, process. Some of the uh, specialties have have responded to their uh, physicians in that specialty and, and modified uh, that pathway to be a more reasonable approach, while others to date have not. And we hope Going forward, there'll be more changes. I know there's a, there's a push in the physician community to, uh, to, to seek alternative uh, certifications. You know, be, be, because so many hospital privileges, in other words, to practice in a hospital, one must either be board eligible right. or birds board certified. Yes. So if you lose that certification, you, you lose your career.
0: The process of that maintenance of certification, based on what you're saying, I'm I'm not all that familiar with the regulations behind that kind of uh, certification, but it sounds like that change or need for change or modernization to some extent of the philosophies around certification process, it sounds like it's an issue with the certifying bodies, not so much a legislative issue, or is that not quite right?
1: Yes, there's a big question there. And, you know, I mean, I've I've sat in uh, presentations, I think, given by the uh, Medical Society of Pennsylvania, uh, where I believe that's the uh, residents of the uh, Internal uh, Board of Medicine. And there's some pretty astounding, uh, pretty astounding uh, facts on how physicians do's to that, uh, to that specialty organizations are, are used in and, 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 and the use of those funds, it's not readily apparent how it benefits the physicians or patients.
2: And one of the things that uh, it's on our legislative agenda this year is that because maintenance of certification has caused such an uproar in the physician community, is to ensure that it doesn't uh, become a condition of one's licensure. Or to be on an insurance mm-hmm. panel or something along those lines. We want to make sure, as always, a physician for their license or, or their insurance panel or what have you, it's based on their education, their skill sets, and not necessarily on some sort of testing that uh, the physician community is up in arms with and has some very serious concerns with. I
0: can certainly see having requirements for a certain amount of continuing education that you have to do. Obviously, procedures and equipment and things like that are changing, and so you got to keep up
1: with that. I get that absolutely. And you know, by definition, a profession is maintaining and keeping a current. No, no physician objects to that. And you know, I mean, I'm I'm proud to 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 show my CME credits and in, in the courses I go to in the areas that I feel are important to me and my patients to to stay current in. You know, I'm, I'm all for that. It's just uh, what, what I have trouble with is is when I'm tested in areas that I see no relevance to to what I do on a daily basis.
0: True. Outside of sitting down and preparing for a period of time where you're going back and re-memorizing some information you can put out on a test, it doesn't necessarily affect at all your actual outcomes and your what actually happens for your patients that you treat every
1: day. Exactly.
0: I know that I've got you in between events, Dr. Walsh, and one of the things that I wanted to get to is talking about the, the healthy paradigm. Talk a little bit about what healthy paradigm is and what you all are trying to accomplish there before I have to let you get back to your next event.
1: Healthy paradigm, it, it really is truly an exciting endeavor that, uh, that the Medical Association has, uh, has taken on. And, and, and it's really an essential tool that, uh, that we can use to help uh, design uh, our future and I think I believe uh, demonstrate uh, true value as physicians. It's, and, and, and the re- reason behind it, it, it's really healthy paradigm is really about engagement. It isn't going to matter whether you're an ACO or independent to physician association or solo practice. You know, for, for any situation, uh, success is about engagement. And this engagement that I speak to is, is engagement with, with your patients. And engagement with the physicians that uh, that that you work with within your uh, community, it is about uh, connecting uh, physicians with physicians. It's it, it's really it's a it is a connection from from one electronic medical record to another, and what it does is it provides information to a physician uh, about the care that their patient has received from other physicians. You know, we 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 hear stories, and in and, and even even in in my own family, eighty six year old in my family was having some some falls, and those falls uh, caused appropriately more uh, more medical uh, workup to trying to find the cause, and um, as you might imagine, you know the, those that workup uh, comes with an expense. At the end of the day, what those falls were related to was not a medical problem but really a relative uh, medicine overdose because unknowingly that family member was on three medications uh, from the same drug class. And this, this is what really Healthy Paradigm uh, will solve because it will immediately make records from all those physician offices available to all the physicians that care for that patient. And so it will really, uh, really reduce those uh, the, those risks. It's really about healthy paradigm. It is about eliminating isolation, isolation of the patient, isolation of one physician from another. And and that's why I speak about the power of engagement and the power of healthy paradigm in that process. Um, and, and in addition, it, it's not only just about connection though we go one step further. It's really about wrapping some powerful analytics around all that information that we now collect. And it's with those analytics that we can use as a platform to drive a better outcomes and, uh, and, and document uh, our achievements. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Uh, we, we've looked at it closely over 18 months. We're just convinced that this is the direction to go. It, it really is an effort that uh, will put the patient at the center. The patient will also have a portal that they can go to to have all the information they have, not from just one physician, but from all of their physicians. So it's putting the patient in the center. It's about a platform where the patient can become themselves more active in their own care and, and, and not, not be passive in that care, but, but be a, be an active, uh, active component.
0: If I have an EMR in my practice, then is this, a, an application or a platform that interfaces with my existing EMR and ties it and helps it talk to those other entities out in the world? How does it, how do I get access to this and, and have it available for me?
1: One of the biggest issues with uh, electronic uh, medical records is intraoperability. Yes. Yes. And uh, and this is a challenge. But this product, I like to refer to it as kind of EMR agnostic. It doesn't care. Would I uh, use this instead of? a name your EMR. It can be used as a standalone product. But I would say to to get the full robust and benefit from healthy paradigm, one would like to use it in conjunction with their a medical uh, electronic medical record. I see. and if is that is, is it available for
0: general consumption now?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, uh, we are in the we are uh, going around and and uh, helping people uh, under understand uh, all, all the advantages that uh healthy paradigm uh b- bring to a practice uh and and their patients and and really i I'd, enc- I'd encourage everybody to uh to visit visit the website www.healthyparadigm.com
0: and healthy is with an e instead of a That's
1: Y. exactly Health thank e you thank you Health paradigm e like you're right right healthyparadigm.com the the
0: the web page will have a link that folks can click to it from from there as well. And if you want more information about the work that Medical Association of Georgia Foundation has been doing around opioid ab- abuse, they've, they've made available a, a website you can go and check out, rxdrugabuse.org. Good information there for uh, folks interested in learning more about what they can do, whether they're a a patient or a, or a physician or other healthcare provider, uh, it might make sense to stop by and check out rxdrugabuse.org to learn more about what you can do uh, to help combat prescription drug abuse. Because as Donald was saying earlier in the show, it certainly has re- reached epidemic uh, proportions and affecting many, many, many people around our community. So a great resource being made available there. And I'd be remiss to start the year off with our folks from Medical Association of Georgia if we didn't talk just for a moment about why should I be a member of Medical Association of Georgia
2: Well, I think it's very important for physicians to remain united uh, right now with uh, you know we've had a change in, in leadership in this country uh, with the Republicans taking over the presidency as well as uh, maintaining their their position in the House and then uh, taking uh, and maintaining their position in the Senate. So there are going to be a lot of changes uh, coming down the road. And it's extremely important now for physicians to be their advocates for patients because, uh, you know, one patient, it's hard as a patient to navigate the system at times. But your physician is your advocate and that's part of their profession. and, And the oath that they take is to be your advocate and so it's extremely important. And so for the reasons that we've outlined today, dealing with these insurance mergers, dealing with where healthcare is going, you got to have a voice. If you don't have that voice, well, you know, you are going to have a problem at the end of the day. And so it's extremely important for physicians uh, to have that organization. And that's what we do for physicians. We've got nearly 8,000 members. And so we advocate for physicians where physicians, you know, the physicians tell us what they want, what want done. And and that's where my role comes in is to implement what what they want strategically. So I would say, please, for yourself, for your profession and for your patients, join the Medical Association of Georgia. And you can do that on our website at www.magmag.org backslash membership. Got a very interactive website talking about all the issues that we're addressing. So not only are we advocating at the state legislature, advocating with our congressional delegation along those lines and all the regulatory bodies, but we're also doing things like a medical reserve corps, like uh, where we, we have physicians ready in time of a disaster to be deployed for three days and they can set up a mobile hospital. That's what we do dealing with prescription drug abuse, dealing with a Georgia physician leadership Academy. This is all of what mag does, even though, Legislatively, that's very important to us, and that's our bread and butter. But we do a lot of other things. We 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 do the accreditation for uh, the prisons and the jails. So when when they're we we make sure that the prisoners and the jails are accredited, just like Joint Commission does for hospitals. We do that for the prisons and jails. So I say all that, uh, we, you know, to to for the physicians out there to join Mag. Uh, we are your voice. You can reach me at any time. Um, I give out my email, uh, and and people can give me a call and give me their thoughts. It's it's at uh, dpalmisano, P-A-L-M-I-S-A-N-O, at mag.org, or my cell phone number. I'd love to hear if you've got out-of-network problems with uh, surprise billing. And my cell phone, it's out there. two nine zero three zero four zero four. 404. 312-9030 and I'm more than happy to take any calls. A number of ways that a physician can have their voice be
0: heard through participation with the Medical Association of Georgia from just contributing their opinion to their colleagues who are are part of the MAG House of Delegates to actually being a part of that and being a delegate uh, yourself. So uh, can't say you don't have time. I assure you, you've got time to share what your thoughts are around what your life is like in practicing medicine here in the state of Georgia. If you've not done so already, go to the upper left-hand corner of the show page to the Apple logo. That'll take you to the iTunes store where the Medical Association of Georgia's Shows will live in podcast form, and you can subscribe to us and that way each week when a new episode comes out it's downloaded straight to your device ready for you to check out when it's convenient for you please turn around and hit share on the link to the podcast because you're going to be sharing information with colleagues and people that you care about that might make a difference for them we'll say thanks in advance to everybody that does so all the people at Medical Association of Georgia I really have appreciated working with you over time and uh, pleased to have you gentlemen with us here in the studio today thanks for making time I know I got to get you dr. Walsh to your next next event so we'll wrap it up here but everybody out there that made us a part of your day today thank you so much gentlemen have a great rest of the afternoon
2: thank you very much thank you. Thank we'll you. see
0: you all same time same place next mm-hmm. week we'll see you then